Before I get into the, the teaching today, um, I hope you realize that when we do things like this, these are sacred and holy things that we can become part of as the kingdom, as the community of believers. And it's, you remember we talked about last week, God listens and God hears. You heard the prayer of a grandfather dedicating his granddaughter to him. You heard the prayer of a community come alongside missionaries who are being called and answering that call. And I want you to be encouraged as a community of faith that God hears and is interested in what his people do. Amen? I've said amen a lot today. I feel a little Pentecostal. See? Amen. See? It's catchy. We'll go charismatic next week. Not quite sure what that means. I've heard it like somebody has to clap in out of rhythm. That's what it is. Charismatic churches, they clap off the beat. Don't do that because it'll mess us up. All right. Lord, give us grace. Thank you for your word. I may the words of my heart, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. If we can put the verse we're working through up there today, that would be awesome. Revelation. It's not revelations. It's revelation. Chapter 1, verse 4 through 8. Here we go. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. John is writing to a couple churches in the book of Revelation here, seven, on, seven in all. We don't know why he picked these churches. There are other churches in the area that he could have written to. We actually looked through the letters about a year ago and what they kind of spoke to us as a church. Um, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to just focus on this text. And so he's writing, this, he's writing this letter, and he begins with a, a greeting. But it's not just your usual, everyday, hello, hey, this is a letter from John, how you doing, type of thing. There's something deeper, there's something more profound that's going on in his greeting to the churches. He begins with two of my favorite words, grace and peace. John speaks grace and peace. And peace to the churches. 
These two words kind of, they just kind of fit together, right? They, they just feel right when they're together, almost like they're married some way, like you can't have one without the other. Grace and peace. It's because of God's grace to us that we can even begin to live in his peace. Grace and peace is this gift. And it's not just him filling up space on the paper. He is bestowing onto the people who are reading this what these words are proclaiming. He's giving it away. He wants to bless them with grace. And he wants to bless them with peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. You know, a funny thing, interesting thing about grace is if you think you deserve it, lucky you're here, I was going to call you. If you think you deserve it, I digress. If you think you deserve grace, it's no longer grace. We don't deserve, I mean, you can plead for it. You can beg for it. You can hope for it. You can be face down asking God for it but you don't deserve it. And the moment you think you deserve it, it's no longer grace. It's something that you now are trying to work for. And so, the offer of God's grace is even grace in and of itself. The offer of something you don't deserve. In fact, there's this paradox. You can't receive the grace of God, until you come to the point in your life where you recognize you do not deserve the grace of God. You cannot receive the grace of God until you come to the point in your life where you recognize you don't deserve it. And so it's unmerited, it's unearned, it's undeserved. God's favor is for people. And that's manifest. It manifests itself, manifests itself in peace. Or in the Hebrew, we would say shalom. And it's this well-being that exists for God's people in the midst of threats, in hard times, in brokenness. If you ever want to do a study in the Old Testament on, on peace or shalom, it's just this amazing thing that God is just giving to his people. And it's physical, and it's spiritual, and it's emotional. And so it, be, it becomes part of our everyday life. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky thing that we hope that someday maybe just a little bit we'll have. It's God's desire to give His people grace and peace, His shalom. It's salvation in the middle of anxiety and struggle. It's His justice being played out every single day. Whether you're the one that brings the justice or you're the one receiving the justice. Peace is the justice of God. And so John starts this letter. Grace and peace. Bestowing a blessing, giving a blessing. Grace and peace. And he wants the people to know where it has come from. And so he begins at the beginning. The one who is who was, and who is to come. This name comes from 
it, it comes from a paraphrase of the name of Yahweh in Exodus. And it's a reminder that grace and peace come from the one who stands outside of time and who has created time for his creation to live in. And even time itself bends its knee to the creator, to him, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. And I know that's hard to get our minds wrapped around. We can only begin to understand the, the eternal from just a, our finite perspective, which really is not much understanding at all. But God still reveals himself to his people and still extends this idea of his grace, his peace. This God who is eternally existent has no beginning. He has no end. He has always been. He doesn't rely on creation or the act of creation. He is self-sustaining. He doesn't need his creation to sustain himself. Before anything was, God is. Before anything and everything was, God is. And in the context of the letter that's being written, these words that John is writing to the churches, this is something very important for the people to start to understand and start to get a hold of. Because what's happening in these churches in the time of this letter being written, things are starting to get hard for the church. Things are starting to become difficult. Their faith is going to be tested, and it is being tested. Things, things are starting to get hostile to this young church, these group of Jesus followers. And when those things begin to happen, and it's those times where worry and doubt starts to seep in to the human heart and the human soul, and we think, we begin to think that God has abandoned us. But John wants these churches to remember that the one who is eternal is offering to them his grace, his peace. Favor. And so he blesses them from the eternal one, the God who is sovereign, the God who, is, who exercises his, his sovereignty over all history. Let that, let that seep in just for a minute. God exercises his sovereignty over all of history. That means that nothing has ever taken place, ever, that God is not sovereign over. Every single thing that has ever taken place from the sparrow falling from the sky to the biggest event in our world history, God is sovereign. And he exercises that sovereignty. This is his power experienced in the past, guaranteed in the future, and the power of God working right now in this very moment. Today. And then it says that, and it comes from the seven spirits before his throne. Now there's, man, I could spend a lot of time getting really crazy on this. Nobody really knows for sure what this means. Seven is a number of completion, and some might think that it's the manifest completion of the Holy Spirit, uh, symbolically spoken there, or some type of uh, heavenly entourage that is ministering before the throne of God. 
whatever you want to subscribe to, you know, it really doesn't matter to me. But we know that grace and peace comes from the divine, God's throne. And then, and then from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The faithful witness. Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity, bringing God's truth and the revelation of that truth to earth. He is the evidence of the truth of God. And not only is he the evidence of it, but how it looks to live it every day. How it looks to live in the evidence of God's truth. What it looks like to go about in your daily life and live out who God is. Jesus is the faithful witness. And his every day, the way he interacts with people, the way he loves with people, the priorities that he made, it was, it was our example about how that we're called to live in that. Now, I know that we fall desperately short in that, but thank goodness for the grace and the peace that God pours out. But that does not diminish the example that Jesus is. He modeled for us what it looks like to stand firm in God's truth and not to bend and not to give in. He's the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead. He has overcome death. Not only is he sovereign over life, not only is he sovereign over time, he's also sovereign over death. And through his death and resurrection, he will reign over everything. And for the faithful, we, they, we will reign with him forever and ever Amen. And as the firstborn of the dead, as it says in Psalm 89, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, Matthew 4, Satan, he tests Jesus. He says, yo, Jesus, come here. Let me say something. All the kingdoms are yours. You just worship me. All these kingdoms, they're yours. And Jesus says, oh, nay, nay. Oh, no. But through his obedience to the Father, he was given rule over all of those kingdoms anyway. Because of his obedience to the cross, he was given rule over those kingdoms. And that cross led to our salvation. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. You see, this is no ordinary greeting in some ordinary letter. John is setting the stage for the followers of Christ, making sure they understand who God is and who Jesus is because they're about to be tested in their faith. They're about to be persecuted as a church, as a faith community. Things are not going to go well for them. And he wants them to be sure of who God is and who Jesus is. And he wants them to be sure that through his death and his resurrection, Jesus has opened the path to victory for his church. You see, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. It, 
He will establish himself in his rule over all the earth. Jesus wins. And it doesn't matter whatever life throws at you. Whatever you get beat up with, hit with, Jesus still wins. Period. And so this king of kings, this firstborn of the dead, this faithful witness, loves you so much, so much, that he would free us from our sin. He would free us from our spells. He would free us from brokenness and the chains of death. And as he has set us free, he has replaced our sin with grace and peace. Grace and peace. And the love that he has for his people for all people, is a continuing love. It's a love that never ends. And it's a love that manifested itself from leaving heaven, coming to earth, living a life as a human, walking to the hill of Calvary, stretching out his arms on that cross, spilling his blood, gasping for breath, dying so that we could be forgiven. That's the one who gives his grace and peace to a forgiven and ransomed and reconciled people. And through his death, through his life and through his death and through his resurrection, he has created a kingdom of us. A kingdom of priests. And he's promised us blessing. And he's promised that that we can take parts in divine and sacred things, which you've just seen this morning here. We all have been called to the sacred and the holy and the divine, not because you're good enough, not because you got it together, not because you're well-read, not because you can sing well, not because you can regurgitate chapter and verse, because of Christ. He has called you to be a Heart in the holy. And so to him be the glory and the praise and the honor. To him be the power and the might forever and ever. This is not, this is not written in hopes of. This is not written in, boy, I really hope this takes place. I really hope this is going to happen. This is written with, with, with just standing firm that this is happening and it will happen. There's no second guessing this. And he returns and he comes with the clouds, not riding on the clouds, as the days of Elijah says. He comes with the clouds, which is just a symbol of the divine. And his sovereignty will be established once and for all. No one is going to think or guess or wonder anymore. The sovereignty of Jesus Christ will be established Firmly, once and for all. There will be no second guessing. There'll be, you can't ignore it anymore. And even those who have pierced him, and maybe we can extend that to, to those who have this careless indifference about Christ, they will not be able to ignore it anymore. They will no longer be able to be indifferent because Jesus will come and establish his sovereignty. Once. For all. 
and people will mourn as that truth is revealed to them. And then in the last verse, I am the Alpha and the Omega is the Lord. Again, John, is, this is not some just theological concept or quote. He wants them to make sure that this timeless, eternal, loving, caring God is, was, and will return. This is more than just the beginning, the greeting of a letter. John is writing to a group of people who are going to get into some hot water for the things they believe. They're living in a culture that is pushing back against Christianity, against this faith community, against the things that they believe. It's pushing back, and it's getting harder and harder to live as a Jesus follower in this setting. So this is the greeting, the beginning of his letter. Now, Thanksgiving has now come and gone. And we have entered into the Christmas season. We know that because we have celebrated the infamous holiday of Black Friday which starts on Thursday, which is wrong, okay? That's just morally, ethically wrong. Black Friday should be on Friday. 1201, fine, okay, but Friday. Before you know it, it's going to be like Black Fourth of July, woo and, you know, <laughs> and we're going to start then. But we know that now we are in the, though, you know, CVS has Santa in the door for like weeks now. And you walk in, you got that little dumb-looking Santa just sitting there like, eh, banging the bells or whatever he's got going on. I've seen commercials on TV already. You know, the stores are starting. They were Christmassy long before Black Friday. But it's the official start. And so it begins, right? And so it begins for our culture. You know, a lot of money is spent this time of year on gifts being bought and given and party decorations and parties and, you know, light. I get in trouble every year because I don't put lights on our house. And it's only because you have to take them off again, which, you know, nobody wants to do. But Sandy's like, you better put some lights on the house this year. Never. We put a Christmas tree up, which is light enough, I think. Why no? I digress. I'm in trouble. Okay. But what I, what I find interesting during this time of year is the controversy that swirls around Christmas. Like, can we even call it Christmas anymore? Do we have to call it the holidays? Or, you know, is it okay to call it a Christmas party in the school? Or do we need to call it, you know, the holiday party? Or do you wish people a Merry Christmas? Or do you have to say Happy Holidays? You know, the big thing, one of the big things that's tracking on Facebook, oh, the White House now calls it a holiday tree. Two words, so what? And so all this controversy swirling. Can the town put a manger there? Or does it have to put it over there? Because they don't like the manger over there. And so we entered into the season not only of celebration and gifts and all this cool stuff, but also of controversy. You know, I was doing some research online, and there's a phrase that I found in a few different articles, and it's called Christmas depression. What I find interesting is it's politically correct to put Christmas in front of depression, but nothing else. 
But it's a term called Christmas depression that people become more depressed during this time of year. Suicide rates go up in the month of December. And there's just like many triggers that cause that. And one of the main ones is just the intensity of this time of year, the stress of this time of year, because you got to go buy the food and you got the family coming over. And you know, you got a company clean the house. You just can't give it the once over. You got a deep clean for the company to come over because, you know, Auntie, huh, she's going to notice the little fuzzball in the corner or something like that. And, and the stores are always crowded and the roads are crowded and there's traffic. Find a parking space in the mall now. Go into the stores and try to just to go in quickly and leave. You can't do it. And doesn't it seem like the mean people get just a little bit meaner at Christmas. So all of these things swirl around, and it's also a time of year that, that, makes, that makes some people miss things that they used to have. And they miss that relationship. Or they miss the person that's gone before them that they've lost. And it hurts. And, and, and for whatever reason, it, it, this, this holiday is the one that just, just magnifies that brokenness and that pain. You see, Christmas depression, it's real. It's not a joke. And so a time and a season that's supposed to be a celebration, that's supposed to be something beautiful and something sacred, Sometimes isn't that for a lot of people in our culture. And for some, they've just lost the focus completely. It's no longer about the celebration of Jesus. It's become about going and buying and giving and getting. It's about commercialism. And we seem to lost, have lost our way. But I will say this, that it's not... Christmas is not about Santa. It's about Jesus. It's not about Santa. It's about Jesus. It's a season of God's grace and peace to his people, a season to recognize and remember the love of Jesus, a season to understand that God is in control of everything, no matter what you call it. And no matter what you believe, it's a time to remember when the love of God steps into human history and changes everything. And it's also a time to hope and pray in the day when he will do it one more time and change everything again. And so it all begins. Christmas, next week we'll celebrate the first week of Advent. And I want to offer some encouragement to the church, as we, as we come into this time. For those of you who enter into this time of season and it just, it brings up pain and hurt and brokenness. For those who actually have experienced, or maybe even you are experiencing that that Christmas depression. And it's not because the sun goes down quicker. I mean, it's based around this holiday time. For those of you who experience loss, a much deeper place this time of year. I want to 
want to say to you, grace and peace from the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. Grace and peace from the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. I want you to remember that one day, one day Jesus will come back. And he will take your brokenness. And he will take your pain. And he will turn it to eternal joy. And this, this isn't it. This isn't it. And I don't want you to think for a moment that you're some broken human because you can't just get into Christmas. I don't want to minimize your pain. I want to recognize your pain. I want you to know God's desire, the light of Christ would pour into your heart and begin to bring you to your knees. And so grace and peace to you. Those of you who have become frustrated with Christmas because it's gotten so busy and so commercial and it's in, in, our, in our culture and our society has lost the focus of Jesus. I want to encourage you, relax. Take it easy. Don't get angry. Don't become embittered. Don't worry about what everybody else is focusing on or what they're not focusing on. Be concerned with what you're focusing on. Be concerned with your own heart. Maybe the hearts of your family. Don't get crazy about all that. Focus on what's going on in here. Because you know, the reality of it is, getting gifts is okay. It is. Giving gifts is okay. Santa Claus, hats with the bell, it's cool. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is still the best song ever. It's okay. It really is. It's, it's okay. You know, I've, read, I've already seen tracking on Facebook. Another thing, it's, um, it's not Happy Holidays. It's Merry Christmas for me. You don't have to get all upset about the phrase Happy Holidays. You don't. You don't have to protect the Christmas greeting. You don't have to stress yourself out over it. Maybe, maybe somebody's wishing you happy holidays because they're just trying to be accepted. Maybe their job tells them that they cannot say Merry Christmas, and so they've, they've been programmed to say happy holidays. Not everybody wishing you a happy holidays wants to destroy the sanctity of Christmas. Maybe, maybe they're Jewish. Maybe they're Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist. Maybe they've looked at you and you look Jewish or Muslim or Hindu. And they're trying to be respectful. They're not trying to poke fun at you. And I'll tell you, if you're in correcting mode and somebody wishes you a happy holiday and you correct them with a Merry Christmas, you're going to have a tone. You're going to have a little bit of a... Inside, not out there. If you do that, just don't tell me come to our church. You do not have to protect Merry Christmas. 
Maybe, maybe instead if somebody says to you, hey, happy holidays, you look at them and you smile and you wish them a happy holidays back. And then you just add, hey, God bless you. Or maybe you say, make me feel good. That's going to freak them out. <laughs> People aren't used to be, we're not accustomed to being blessed in our society. People don't speak blessing. You don't call the place to say, hey, you guys did a great job. You call to yell at them because they did a bad job. People aren't accustomed to receiving blessing. And isn't it better to speak a blessing instead of trying to think you're theologically correct if you're a married person? Isn't it better blessing into people's lives and to get all hung up. Just so you know, Jesus wasn't born in December, okay? Don't worry about this. We know as a church about Jesus in everything that we talked about up here. We know it's about this. The church knows it's about that. And we don't have to be militant in our protection of it. Like, oh no, God's a weak little God, and if I don't stand up and say Merry Christmas, then God loses. I'm here to tell you, Jesus wins. Every single time. No matter what the day is called. And so, and so let's be a people of grace and peace. Let's be a people who gives away blessings. Let's, let's be a people who stand firm in these truths. The sovereignty of God, the love of God, the grace and the peace of God. You have been given blessing. Now extend it to others. You have been given grace. Now extend it to others. You have been given the peace of God. Now extend it to others. You have been given Jesus. Now give him away. Not just with your words. Give him away by being a faithful witness to the Christmas story. Grace Love, blessing, forgiveness. God is in control of everything. That's our truth. As we celebrate this, this thing that happened in history, we as the church, we hope in the future that is to come. That's what this season's about. And so it begins. I encourage you to be a people of God's blessing everywhere. Love you guys. Happy holidays. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>